Welcome to episode number two of Crateism, a podcast dedicated to the art of record collecting. My name is Fatima Chantel, and on this show, I'll be talking to DJs, record shop owners, and folks that are just plain passionate about wax. This is the conclusion of my interview with Sacramento's Matt Chong. I highly suggest that you go back and listen to the first part if you haven't done so already, so everything flows better and you get all the references. We pick up our discussion by talking about Chardet, as well as classic record labels like Rockus, Stone's Throw, and Death Row, along with the pre-Serato days, the old Kanye, and that one time he had a certain legendary West Coast lyricist as his roommate. Heads up! For those sensitive to sound, we are actually physically digging through the crates during these interviews, so you're going to hear some rustling of plastic and things of that nature. I hope you enjoy. Don't forget to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Peace. Sade, which is, you know, a classic, looking at Diamond Life. Oh, yeah. Um, Any other Sade albums? Definitely. Um... I think Sade, I actually was, that's another example of records I bought after kind of re-familiarizing myself Mm -hmm. with her music. Mm -hmm. Because I I think her music for me definitely was like something that, um, something I always heard and I never really, I I never listened to detail when I was young. And then I got older and I started listening to it again. You start to realize, well, okay, there's something really interesting. And the funny part about it was, was that I actually got reacquainted with, Sade at one point was because she was performing in Sacramento. Oh, gosh. Yeah, and this dude that, I think he installed a car stereo for me or something, but he was asking me, uh, yo, are you going to go see the Sade concert? <laughs> and I was like, where is the R from? I was like, where do people get the R from? But I always heard some people say Sade and then people say Sade. Yeah, yeah, I've heard both. Yeah. But yeah, no, I love her voice, um, and, and I, I always thought that what was cool about her was that she just had not only things that were inherent to, like, her own category of music, but she also partnered up with, you know, people for just, like, really interesting remixes, whether it was, like, Pharrell or Jay-Z. She right. always kind of did, like, things that were really current, too. So smooth. Yeah. I feel like it's been, you know, a decade or so. She, she can needs release one. some more music or another tour. I know. I wonder why she has. I mean, she probably is living off publishing really well, I hope. Right. You know, and why not? But it would be great to see her come back out again. I feel like this is kind of the time when we need that stick to your music again. Right. Uh, so now I'm looking at a Stone's Throw promo, Dudley Perkins. Now, since you were in L.A. in the 90s, mm-hmm. do you have any like memories of Stone's Throw kind of like bubbling up? Yeah, totally. Um, time? I remember definitely when, like, you know, all the Mad Lib projects we're starting to come out. I remember, um, I think, I, I think the first introduction was probably like through Quasimodo records. Oh yeah. And I remember the Quasimodo, um, just, I remember, well, I remember first seeing, seeing the crates and seeing that weird cartoon character. It was like the aardvark or anteater or something like that. It's kind of like a, I think it's like both put together. <laughs> I don't really know. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So my eyes aren't tripping. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was, it was seeing like, um, uh, Quasimodo records and then learning about like, you know, peanut butter wolf mm-hmm. and then, the whole idea of like them just being like this collective and, and i and i thought i think it was during that time i think that was when like you know the crew the ob, the idea of a crew and hip-hop was like a, a big idea because you, you almost needed power and numbers in order to really make an impact mm-hmm. and i think during that time especially la hip-hop and la underground hip-hop i remember stones were being really interesting because they bridged that gap between what i love in terms of boom bap hip-hop and soul music 
Right. Like they just had it all together in one and they were releasing like all this soul music that was, I mean, I think they're re-releasing so much music that never really got its due shine the first time around. So I remember them definitely being like one of the first labels that like anytime they release something, I would go, oh, I need to hear that. Okay. Uh, now I'm looking at KRS's I Got Next, an autographed version um, so obviously he came through the radio station yeah. or mm-hmm. came through the, the radio station. I want to say we met him at the beat and uh, yeah, I, I don't know if it was a wake up show during that time. That was when wake up show was airing out of the beat um, studios or it may have been, I remember this being a big song, so it could have been, he could have gone up there and visited during the week with um, someone, one of the DJs. It may have been like with Julio G that was um, at that, I think it was seven. He was working like 6 p.m. To 10 p.m. every night, so he was one of the um, one of the main DJs during the week. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like that was maybe when I may have met him because I remember that song being like the first kind of big single I saw from KRS One in the nineties. Step 90s. into a world was yes. that okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I remember I remember there being like a video treatment for that and all kinds oh, of stuff. Damn. Yeah. Was he nice? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice dude. I think that was also during the time when he was on his big education kick. I think he started edutainment. Yes, <laughs> I remember that. And, and he he was like there was like. What did he say? Something like there's five elements of hip hop, not four. And he said the fifth one was the hustle. Or fifth, the fifth one was business or something like that. And that always kind of stuck with me. Okay. But I remember he had like a, a school of hip hop or some sort, like off Melrose. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, he had a lot going on during that time. I, I totally remember this because um, it was really a time when like this hip hop, the stuff that you know I really like was really bubbling. I mean, this was 97. So interesting to think about. I mean, come on, 97, Jive Records, like you had majors mm-hmm. releasing music that now we would consider underground rap, but still majors, still with major push, still getting worked on radio at radio stations, still getting video budgets. We're sitting in a much different time now. Damn. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm looking at Talib Kweli's Just to Get By. That's my I Got Fired theme song. <laughs> okay, tell me more about that. Yeah, so when I was at Hits Magazine... I think it was right after 9-11. It was, um, so the magazine was really prosperous at one point. I mean, they, I know they're still doing really well, but at one point, you know, you always hear about the music business going through a certain period of excess. You hear you hear yeah. a lot of guys talk about it on podcasts now, Like right? the old days, yeah, the good like, old days. Like, like you'll hear um, like Jim Jones talk about it a lot on, I think it was Drink Champs, where, you know, he's like, yeah, in the 90s, like there are budgets. Like, mm-hmm. There are budgets, like big budgets. He talks about like, the power of an invoice. Like you could literally invoice someone, they would just pay you. And... There was a time when, you know, there was all this influence. You felt like, you know, you're living kind of like a dreamscape in the music business. Mm-hmm. 9-11 hit. Economy went down. And um, so basically, yeah, I got called into my boss's office. I was already kind of on my way out anyway. Mm-hmm. I think I was just kind of at that point in the job where you're starting to be different, disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. So I was already ready to go. I was already in- interviewing at other places. And then uh, my boss called me in and had the talk and let me go. And... Um, that was actually the first song I played when I was in my car going down Ventura Boulevard, sunroof open, like actually feeling kind of liberated. And that was actually right before I moved back home to Sacramento. Oh, okay. Um, and, and coincidentally, I actually just had lunch with my old coworker, who was my direct supervisor that got laid off at the exact same time. <laughs> um, we just had lunch today in Sacramento. And he's, he's a, a DJ that was originally from Milwaukee Damn. that uh, worked in LA too. That's crazy. Yeah. That comes full circle. <laughs> um, that's a good exit song. Yeah, it totally sure. is, right? And also looking at a promo of High Tech's 
round and round. That's right. High Tech did a solo album right yeah. after Talib and Kweli's album. Was that? Yes. I'm trying to remember. Yeah. Uh, this is Round and Round with Janelle. That was when Rockus was on fire. Yeah, Rockus. That was like they had the jams. Mm-hmm. Um, definitely another one of those things where I remember early in the Rockus days, like almost everything, like they dropped in the beginning, like I loved. Mm-hmm. Um, like huge fan of like you know Reflection Eternal, Black yeah. Star, Most Talib. And then you know when High Tech came out, it was it was really cool because if I don't remember correctly, um, his album it was cool because his album not only featured like our favorite underground under quote unquote underground or independent style artists, but it also had I think some fairly mainstream guys on there too. I want to say he had like a song with Snoop and some other people. So it was cool to see producers start to step out of that realm a little bit mm-hmm. and show that how versatile they were. Definitely my one of my favorite records I think on the album because. Um, I mean, it just had a little beat, and this was definitely a record where I had a friend. I have a friend that was uh, Tang Ha, who was working mix show at the, mix show DJ at the beat at the time. So he used to go in there, and the jo- the joke with Tang was like every time he used to go in the radio station, he'd have you know you have to bring your Creator Records in, right? You didn't use the the library, so you literally brought like a rolling Creator Records in, but pre Serato, <laughs> you know, you carried like a hundred records in, and that's what you played your mix show set on on the radio. So the joke was that Tongue would never ever his records would never leave the car, right? That's what that's this is during that time when like radio was like really repetitive, really uh-huh. really repetitive. We're talking songs being played 150 times a week. Damn. So he would take out the same fucking bag, and it was like the same old shit. Mm-hmm. And this was a song we loved. So at one point I was like, dude, like why don't you try to play this and see what happens? Right. And he actually did it. And I remember after that actually seeing. Um, so back in the day when people played music on the radio there had to be some sort of data to support the fact that it was played right mm-hmm. so that's why people say like oh you had spins right mm-hmm. like the artist said i had this many spins on radio well mm-hmm. at some point there was someone counting those spins mm-hmm. so during those times i would say 90s and before there were businesses completely based on people either listening to the radio and listening for song detections and then they had an electronic way of doing that eventually but basically um after we played this record a couple times in the mix show, it got, started getting detections. Mm. So we just thought that was cool just because, you know, being a couple of young bucks in the business, and you're just like, wow, I had an impact. Like, right. you know, you played it first and then other people played it. So was there any payola going on back Absolutely. then? Okay. All the time. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, shit. That's actually probably one of the things that kind of disenfranchised me with the music mm. business. Not necessarily the payola per se, but the fact that you saw why there were some a lot of bullshit records coming out now. Mm. You know, for us, definitely personally, it was just because like there were some records that we just didn't clearly like, but there was they had money behind them. Then you really got to see the fact where politics came into play, where someone may have big financial backing, so they're able to go in and pay. Like, there's a huge business that goes into marketing music, not directly to the consumer, mm-hmm. but marketing music directly to the influencer. So the influencer marketing started in the music business, I feel. Hmm. There's millions, million, back then, there were millions of dollars being allocated to market music directly towards PDs, MDs, so program directors, music directors, mix show DJs, just to get them to be aware of it so then they could disseminate that music down to the audience. So during that time, yeah, you saw it all the time. I mean, there were literally conference calls where people would go, who, who are we breaking off this week? You know, which DJ? Who's it going to be? You saw it when you went to, like, events. I mean, there's a reason why labels, labels would pay for, you know, tons of DJs to fly to, you know, a, a, a mix show summit, you know, in Puerto Rico. 
there was a lot of money being invested into people in an inadvertent ways mm-hmm. that could be construed as payola. Um, as far as like direct cash and cocaine and all that stuff that you read <laughs> about, like you always hear cash, hookers, cocaine, right? Right. I've, I know that definitely happened to a certain degree. I don't think it was really that literal. Maybe in some ways it was, maybe, in, maybe before my time. But there was definitely like exchange of goods and favors and things like that in order to get stuff played for sure. Technically, it was illegal, right? Or yeah, but okay. I would say legal and illegal. So okay. you would see, um, like, for instance, a radio station would give away a car, mm. right? But it'd be like some $50,000 car. Well, the car has to come from somewhere. And odds are it wasn't so-and-so Ford dealership that funded the cost of that car. Right. Sometimes it was a label. Yeah, you, you just saw, like, influence kind of being paid for in different ways. Like, they say that, you know, there's certain DJs out there that you would pay and they would drop a bomb on your record you know or things like that so you always you always heard about these things you never really know if it's true Mm -hmm. because you know there's there's i think for every rumor there's like a someone that's kind of hating sideways and (laughs) they want to spread that shit on you anyway so who knows if it's true but i do know that there was always money behind promotion for sure Mm, interesting time so i'm looking at I think one of my favorite record label logos, Tommy Boy. Yeah. Um, this is a single of De La Soul's Ring Ring Ha Ha Hey. <laughs> that was everyone's answering machine and pager greeting. <laughs> Actually, that was even before I... I want to say this was... Let me see what year this was now. I am drawing a blank because um, it was... Okay, yeah, that's all right. So yeah, because I graduated high school in 92, so this is 91. So yeah, that's, this, that's it. I remember I first heard this record because it was a cat who was actually a local DJ in Sacramento, mm-hmm. um, Cantos, Sean Canty, who we played tennis together at Kennedy High School. And, and I remember this dude, this was kind of before you kind of realized people around you were into these things, you uh-huh. know? Like, I didn't know he was a hip hop head, but I remember calling his answering machine and hearing, <laughs> hey, how are you doing? So you can't get through. So even, you know, you heard this on his answering machine and then, and then you... I'm like, oh, that's De La Soul. Right. And then much years later, you know, the wax comes in front of you. So this, I definitely got this way after I heard the song. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good stuff. Um, now we're moving on to Jay-Z, looking at the Blueprint 1 and 2. The Blueprint 2 is still sealed, and it's a it's a radio promo. Yeah. And yeah. then the first Blueprint is yes. actually blue, which yes. is really dope. Any memories? Totally. Um, I would say... When I was interning there, just interesting to be around and kind of just be in these rooms, mm-hmm. you know, when, when like things are happening. Because that was the time, I think, when I was still at the radio station and at the label at the same time. So you got to see kind of like both sides of it. So mm-hmm. you, you saw it from a radio perspective when like Jay would come up and I, I actually remember when, I don't know if it was during, the, it may have been during the Blueprint time, but Jay, I remember went up to the beat. And this was when he was kind of beefing with Julio G because I think Julio at one point kind of posed this question like, so yeah, are you really about what you're talking about on these records? Julio G is a DJ. Yeah, yeah so Julio G, okay. Julio G, is a, he was a DJ on the beat. He was he was like the, the part of the, the day part on radio, 7 p.m. to nighttime. Mm-hmm. So it was like for the for for people that were in hip hop. I mean, the, the guy was like, um, I want to say he was, he used to DJ with, um, he was one of the original Mixmaster DJs, original DJs when Dr. Dre was on K-Day down in LA. So, Mm -hmm. so like iconic in terms of like radio history, but also hip hop. I think interestingly enough, he was also a member, um, Gerardo Rico, Rico Suave. Suave. Oh, So he was Gerardo's 
Gerardo's original DJ, tour DJ. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a lot of history. But he basically kind of got into an honor argument with Jay Z. I think it was during those times, uh, during the Blueprint time. Special time for sure. I mean, you know, this was. Um, yeah, this had, I mean, like, all the classics on it. I mean, I remember when this album dropped, it was when I think a lot of radio, a lot of artists were um, doing really catering their artists in the hip-hop space were really catering to radio so now they were doing radio built songs so everything had like an r&b hook or it had the elements of like you know drum patterns and drum sounds that had the male appeal and then it had like guitars or synths or pianos to draw on the female ear Mm -hmm. then it had the r&b thing to kind of make it accessible to everyone and i remember being around certain artists um and when this dropped everyone was kind of they were actually really impressed with it because i feel like the consensus was that he really put this album out without the intent of having radio singles. People felt like he put this album out kind of like, it was a, one of the first ones, I mean, aside from his first album, but that, like, I think people realized, realized he reached a milestone in his career. We didn't have to put out, like, radio-driven hits anymore. He could just do him. Mm-hmm. And then I think we've, inc- we've seen that increasingly over time. I'm trying to remember back to that time, but is that when people really started paying attention to Kanye when Izzo dropped? Yeah, I think that was the very beginning. Because it, it was, Izzo, the Izzo beat was, I want to say that was one of the first ones I think we all became aware of. So during that time, that was when my roommate uh, was Razkaz. Mm-hmm. And Raz had um, a Kanye beat CD because at that point, Raz was on Capitol. And then Kanye was, was trying to shop a deal with Capitol. I think he was trying to get a production or an artist deal through them. Mm-hmm. So he, he just was giving everyone his beat CDs. And I remember Raz had a CD with it and it had the Izzo beat on it. Dang. So it was just kind of weird. You're just like, wow, what you know, what could have been? But yeah, this was definitely during that time when I think Kanye really started to kind of get out there, mm-hmm. and so and his, and his sound really started to kind of you know really pick people's interest for sure. Okay, so next up, I, I'm not familiar with this. You were telling me about it earlier, but this is a 12 inch Pod Dukes. Yeah, yeah. So so this is actually just random. I mean, it really is not like a popular record by any means. It's just important to me because, and I, I just always say that because if you're into like you know, that Uma, Native Tongues kind of like era of hip hop and mm-hmm. like like that soulful kind of boom bap sound. So like look up Pa Dukes, P-A-W-D-U-K-E-S. Song's called Amazing. I first heard this song when DJ Melody from the Beat Junkies played it on the beat. He played it. He had a mix every night called the 7 O'Clock Menu Mix. He would rock this song like every once in a while and I would hear the first three notes and like get looped in. Mm-hmm. And I finally one time I, I happened to just catch him at the station. I was like, dude, what is this? Right. And he told me. And of course pre-Napster, pre-MP3. This record was nowhere. And I happened to be at, I think I was at Rasputin's and I bought one and then I bought a second at Amoeba like years later. Damn. I always just say this is one of my favorite records just because it's a totally unassuming song, but it's just so good. If you're into hip hop, you'll love it. Okay, I'm going to give it a listen. Yeah. Now we're looking at a promo copy of Little Brothers The Listening. I know you were telling me about this uh, a little earlier. Yeah, Little Brother, um... Man, Little Brother has such an interesting, interesting history. Well, one, I thought this was cool, too, because it was on ABB. So ABB being, like, you know, the same label that put out Dilated's early, early, early projects. So just dope that, like, you saw a label that was identifying artists, like, of this caliber in the, in the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was steady pushing them. Definitely during a time when... Okay, yeah, this is about right. So 2002. So 2002, I moved back home in 2003. So I moved from L.A. to... 
Soccer Man 2003. I, I got home and, you know, we, I, I got together with uh, Roy Machado out here um, for 12's Wax at the time. And we started doing some shows together. And um, I remember the soccer market, Sacramento, this is when the soccer mental market kind of almost got me angry a little bit. Uh-oh. Because we booked a couple shows that did not do well at all. One being DJ sets at one event by Africa Bambata and Questlove in one night. Right? Like, to me, that sounds ill. Like if you're if you're into if like you're someone that's like y'all want to go catch like just good DJ sets from a guy that probably has deep you know record collection, mm-hmm. those are two guys I want I'd want to hear. Obviously that was Bambada pre pedophilia yeah. accusations, right? But another one that got me mad. So so that so that show, um, Questlove and Bambada, mm-hmm. I would say a hundred people showed up. How many people did the venue hold? Oh, probably like. Fucking seven fifty or oh, it was at the Stony Inn. Like, it doesn't sound too bad, but it, it was at the Stony Inn on Del Paso. Okay, it was just sad. It was just like, oh my god, I can't believe this. Mm-hmm. And then the second one where I, I think I remember we we lost was Little Brother. We booked him at Harlow's, and like I think two hundred people showed up. Damn. And I think for that, you know, Harlow's. I feel like Harlow's is five hundred to seven fifty sweet spot when you're when you're getting people in there for a nice cracking show. Mm-hmm. But it was just disappointing because you know we all thought like I was like man, Little Brother's like. You know, 2002 Tribe Called Quest, like, that's kind of like their thing. And Zach didn't turn out. Damn. But I think Little Brother always kind of had like difficulty within breaking out of its like core audience. Because mm-hmm. um, I think I, what we were talking before, I want to say that at one point, you know, Little Brother, when they were, were steadily releasing singles, um, I don't know if, I think they had a couple strong videos out. And I remember them not being placed on BET. And the rumor was that one of the programmers felt that it was too smart for BET. Mm, mm, mm. You know what I mean? And, and and I don't know. That's just, that's whack. I mean, yeah. I, I felt like this was kind of like, we all saw, I, I think we all felt like this was another opportunity for a turning point in hip hop when you saw like someone, you know, these guys that were, were not even from New York or LA, right. right? Come in with this sound. And then you had, I mean, obviously Ninth Wonder, like, on the backbone of every single song mm-hmm. and just disappointing that one you couldn't see a larger audience embrace it and two that the media outlets weren't giving them any love either so it's a damn shame mm-hmm. mm. okay now we move on to nerd i'm kind of uh excited about the story because we're talking about it yeah, earlier yeah. this is a promo single for nerd's lap dance yes so so this one's a funny one so um I, I was trying to find him earlier when this album, when this record first came out, you know, lead single off the first record um, in search of, right. It was in search mm-hmm. of. So in search of came out and this reminds me too. Do you remember when search of first came out? Kind of. Okay. So I'm going to find something. I have it somewhere. When in search of first came out, I remember getting a promo version of it and going, I didn't like it. And then I got it again as it got closer to release. And for some reason I liked it. I don't know if I read this or I was told this, but someone said that the first one that came out to media was was one that was all programmed in terms of sequenced, and the other one was actually a live, uh-huh. a live, live instrumentation. Okay. But I remember just feeling like there was two different versions of this album that came out. Huh. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that was a story was so long ago. Okay. But the Laptown's record is very special because when this album first came out, Virgin Records whole, held a, an event at a club called Peanuts in Santa Monica. I don't even know if it's around anymore, but it was a strip club that catered primarily to a lesbian audience. 
So the whole way it worked was, I guess on regular nights, you would have uh, female dancers that would come out and then it would, it would be an all-female audience and at 10 p.m. doors would open to everybody. It was like this really interesting, like unique venue that they decided to hold the NERD lap dance launch party at. So this party, they had like all kinds of just fun stuff going on. One of which they had like these NERD like fake dollar bills. <laughs> that's it in search of i still have them here. oh you do yeah i gotta, I gotta find them oh, um man. but i'll find them i have like two of them still here but this is actually really funny just because we're talking about we're out in front of the club and i remember black rob i believe having a hard time getting in or something <laughs> like that and i believe he got in back in his car and drove by and threw a brick at the building <laughs> because i remember someone going did black rob just throw a brick <laughs> at the building and i guess it was so i remember seeing him there in, in early parts of that day and he just kept going he just kept moving <laughs> kept moving like whoa oh yeah like whoa. <laughs> so y'all wouldn't let black robin damn i feel like uh 1999 black rob would have kept the party lit <laughs> um question do you like buying new records if so you should check out my other podcast the vinyl roundup it's a monthly show where i give you a list of new releases on wax The September edition is available now. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Okay, now this is really interesting. So this is a Dr. Dre single for uh, Deep Cover, Mm -hmm. 187. Yeah. On the Undercover Cop, but uh, looking at the logos. I mean, whenever I think of early Dr. Dre, I just think about, um, I don't think about this label. Yes. Solar. I think of Solar as more of a disco label with Shalimar and the Whispers. Yeah. What's what's the deal with that? So it's interesting because, um, like you're saying, like we all know, well, we know Dr. Dre definitely from the Chronic and like the Death Row Interscope projects. Mm-hmm. And then we also know him from, um, you know, the Wrecking Crew. But this period was during that transitional time when, when uh, you know, he, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he's the founder of S- Solar Records. And basically he opened his doors up to Dr. Dre and what eventually became the crew behind Death Row Records mm. and opened his studio up to let these guys just go up there and make music. So okay. I think this was like the first time when they all had access to that sort of, I don't know if it was maybe just equipment, but I feel mm. like it was access to just having a space to, to work in and be creative in. Mm. And, and, and this was one of the records that came out. I mean, we kind of forget like Deep Cover was the precursor to like some of the other projects is that the first time we heard snoop i'm trying to remember yeah, now it definitely was yeah it definitely was um because this was i'm looking for the year on it now yeah i'm positive that this was like the first time that we heard snoop and that was on a soundtrack wasn't it yep deep covers uh with larry Fishburne. oh yeah deep Cover. yeah mm-hmm. that was a great movie but yeah, just, just, I mean, classic record. I mean, the fact that also you look at it, it's on Epic. I never associated n- neither Dr. Jerry or Snoop being on Epic at all. Yeah, you just think Death Row, Death mm-hmm. Row. Mm-hmm. Did you um, have any interaction with Death Row in the radio days? Yeah, um, I remember, so the guy named Kevin Black. Kevin Black was, um, he's still in the business. Um, I'm not exactly sure what he's doing now, but I, I, I knew Kevin mainly from Interscope um, because he was, I want to say he was a VP of promotion or something at the time, but he at that time was one of the main promotion guys at Death Row. So we used to see him around quite a bit and they were definitely like a powerhouse in LA. Mm. Like you just, 
it was just like an exciting thing because you just saw a, a, this form of hip hop now that was like it just felt it felt completely unfiltered, but it had just huge reach and huge amounts of resource and commercial success. So you saw like um, you just saw the impact that they had all over LA mm. um, in terms of just like a presence on the streets. Um, I mean, naturally, a bunch of hits, you know, all, all over. All, all over the all over the radio and and that and that's you gotta you gotta think about it too like that was before there was really an alternative to radio like we didn't have pandora spotify soundcloud even apple music we didn't have all these alternative places to, to capture music it was really just radio so yeah death row w- was absolutely a dominant force down there for sure i, used to, I actually used to see suge knight driving to work on ventura fairly often fairly often you remember what he drove i think it was um I want to say it was a G wagon. What's a G? It was the, the Benz that looks like a, looks like a um the Kajit kind of like oh, with, okay. with like a box like a I'm like box he's edges. a big dude like he had oh it totally fits him <laughs> totally fits him yeah. I know what you're talking about and and, and actually um, there was a spot in L A God where was it now I, I want to say it was uh, it may have been the Van Nuys but a friend of a friend had a print shop there and the neighboring tenant was someone affiliated with Suge Knight because. That was where he kept his cars. Okay. So people used to see him dip in there from time to time and just pull out different vehicles. Mm. And, and the guy was definitely doing it at the time because mm. he had some crazy cars. Damn. Yeah. So um, we were just talking about when we were first introduced to Snoop, but this may be the first time we were introduced to Most Deaf. Yeah. This is a 12-inch single of the Bush Babies love song. Yeah, I mean, this classic record, you know. Um, like you said, the first time we heard Most, so I feel like that's like a key point pop history and just cool because the credits on this record i mean so produced by pause of de la soul mm. right so i didn't even know that right and then like executive producers kadar massenberg kadar right back like, then yeah so just like i mean it's just it's just i don't know it's kind of dope just to hear about like his i mean because the guys are the guys continuing to to be a force in the industry but but his roots are back in like this like raw part of hip-hop that mm-hmm. is, is definitely definitely very unique to an era but also cool because if i remember correctly um there was a guy behind this record by the name if you can look it up naeem ali um so so at some point you know there's there's like key guys that worked in the music business that were responsible i think for bringing certain people to certain labels mm-hmm. and i want to say that naeem, naeem ali was the guy that was responsible for bringing a bunch of artists to mca towards the late 90s, early 2000s. So I don't, if anyone remembers, there was a time at MCA when the Roots were on at Common. Um, I want to say even Most Def made, no, Most was always on Rockus, but it was like the Roots, it was, remember Reese? Yeah. Um, Jaguar Wright. Oh, yeah, right? yeah. She uh, sang a lot of backup. Yeah, yeah. They all came to MCA um, because I believe Naeem Ali was behind it. Okay. And, and at one point, I remember that, and I don't know if this is, correct or not but i remember naeem i think reaching out to some sacramento sacramento groups righteous movement and um i don't know i, I mean i don't know if that maybe i misheard that but i i want to say that happened at one point but it was just cool because this guy had his ears to like this kind of soul influenced you know section of hip-hop that definitely kind of carved out its own subcategory damn yeah. that's crazy um i don't know if you want to go back to jay-z this is izzo we kind of talked about that earlier. We, that was probably when we really started, uh, you know, yeah, feeling Kanye. Yeah, the Izzo record. Um, just 
classic classic Kanye um and you know definitely kind of personal because I remember just hearing this in its own like stripped down beat form on like a burn CD mm. that had Kanye West written on it in a sharpie damn so um yeah and a pretty cool record still I think it's the blue one yeah nice yeah it's the blue one still so kind of something I'll probably never ever touch a turntable <laughs> <laughs> Right. And so you were saying that that beat CD was from your former roommate or yeah. Raskas who were looking at a, a, a copy of... Uh... Home Sweet Home. Yeah. Yeah. So Raskas, um, introduced by my friend Talk Show who lived, lived with me down there too. Raz was one of my, one of my roommates for shit, probably two years. I mean, to the point to where like, my parents used to come visit and, they, and they, they knew they knew Raz. Mm-hmm. I even made my mom listen to Nature of the Threat. <laughs> You know what I mean? And, like, get familiar with his music and stuff. And so, yeah, like, I mean, shoot. He was around when my parents were there. Like, like my parents met him. Like, he, I mean, Raz was, like, during, it was during a time when he was recording his last album on Capitol. Priority, I'm sorry. Was it Priority? Priority. And um, it was a rough time. I, I remember um, this particular record, Home Sweet Home, produced by Alchemist. The actual beat ended up on a record by um, Jadakiss and Styles, and he, or Jadakiss, and the remix was with Eve and Styles, and it was We Gonna Make It. We Gonna Make It. We, we Gonna Make It. Yeah, that was a great beat. Really good beat, right? Yeah. I guess there was some sort of miscommunication, and I don't know if, if like the label priority did not follow up, or someone didn't get the message on Alchemist side, but basically mm-hmm. um, the song got, I mean, as far as being, it's kind of crazy if you think about it, because this got pressed mm-hmm. so for miscommunication to be that bad to get pressed up and to be distributed to djs it's kind of weird right because it means people signed off on this shit so so this this thing this one came out but this was truly the song that it was supposed to be and it was Razcast home sweet home great song um and, and I, we're and looking at copies of, of both albums the styles 12 inch and the Razcast 12 mm-hmm. inch and we have the test pressing and the test press right here which i'm gonna put a picture of that up on my stories yeah so you can see it it was it was definitely during a time when you know it was when Raz was um, finishing on on finishing uh, probably his last record on Priority and and a weird time because this was during the time when like hip hop it was an expectation set on success I think mm-hmm. whereas if you're a hip hop artist and you're not scanning a million physical copies sold at least and you're not banging in the clubs and you're not like this pop culture icon you weren't valued by the label. And mm-hmm. I felt like if you weren't that, the label did not invest in you as an artist. You, you basically had to fit a pop format at that point, mm-hmm. I think, to be to be a success. And Raz was, you know, he fit something that was underappreciated during that time, was just someone that was just like a raw lyricist. And um, I think a lot of his music went over a lot of people's heads. Um, mm-hmm. But the cool part about it, though, is that, one, the record never got released but he's actually releasing a remastered version of the van gogh album now Tight. and i think physicals are coming out on wax and cd too so i'm i'm definitely buying 12 inches of that damn but um cool to see that it's coming back out raz is selling his hustle um i actually we actually ran into him a couple years ago oh nice that so was good yeah so here we have some wax it's def jam method man and red man's tear it off it should have been on their first record they did together. But the more important part is there's uh, some writing on this album. Yeah, so it's kind of a funny story. They were um, together in L.A. 
Um, they're at the Def Jam office. They're just in there getting ready to do radio runs. And um, the guy that was bringing them around um, was having them just like autograph a bunch of records. And from what I understand, that's, I mean, that's the one that they both wrote on together. So that's where you see like a bunch of Brick City stuff. Ah, from, from, that's what this yeah. is. And then you see um, all the stuff um, with, with Method Man on there too. There's some W's, like some Wu-Tang W's. Yeah. On it. I'll put a picture of this up on my stories. And it's, um, yeah, basically, you know, shoot, I was an intern back then. And um, I just thought it was the coolest thing going to get one of these um, from the guys. But I actually heard that after they wrote this one up, there are actually a bunch of them out there that are actually fake. Because they only did a few. And then I heard they had interns or some, something like duplicate a bunch of them. So, I don't know. People, uh, you may have, uh, there may be other copies of this out there that may not be so real. Okay, when you say not real, meaning like if you try and play it. Oh, no, actually the writing on there. So someone actually faked oh, the writing on some of them. Oh, okay. I see. But, I'm, I'm, but that's the one that definitely came from the office. Nice. So uh, what, what is this right here? You know, I was trying to figure that out. Congas? Yeah, I was looking Breasts? at, I was like, congas, but then it looks like, but then so you look at right here, doesn't it look like, like guitar? Tic-tac-toe? I was like, is that tic-tac-toe or is that like guitar music and you know how like oh notes like musical yeah. notes yeah it looks i think like this notes. is a face like yeah. two eyes a nose and a mouth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. anyway like i said i'll put this up on my story so you guys can take a look at it but yeah definitely 1999 okay um right when it dropped yeah and this was actually something that i always remember having but i i forgot that i had it damn and then when um Sruth was telling me like i pulled together some records that may be interesting i thought about i was like i know i have that somewhere i literally just went out in the garage and pulled it out and found ah, it so there it is that's dope yeah it's a good memory god i feel like we could go on forever i'm looking at copies of like uh, zap mama public enemy stone's throw 45 yesterday's new quintet uh club nouveau now were, they were from sacramento weren't they yeah yeah so there's actually an interesting story with Club Nouveau because, um, damn it, now I'm gonna, I don't want to disrespect him at all, but Jay King, Jay King. So I met Jay King a bunch of times. He's actually eaten at my old restaurant a bunch of times. Oh, okay. So I met Jay King through um, a business associate, and he introduced me as Jay King, and I was like, Jay King, Jay King, mm-hmm. and it sure, sure as hell was. And um, I just thought it was so dope because I, I totally remember this, and the song being so big but then finding out that it was from sacramento after the fact mm. i remember this playing, being playing on like 97 croy or some radio it was some local station back then are, are we talking about why you treat me so bad or lean lean on me lean on me I okay think. yeah yeah and i think i think why you treat me so bad was was lean on me the, the lead single I, i'm trying to remember i I thought it was why you treat me so bad, but I could be wrong. It's kind of hard to remember because it was so long ago. Yeah, it's it's interesting, um, but yeah, definitely like a lot of a lot of local local stuff. Like they actually call out KSFM on the on the on the notes. Oh damn! Oh, I see all these radio stations right here. Yeah. Yep, KSFM, Sacramento, Jealousy, Why You Treat Me So Bad, Lean on Me. Okay, yeah. heavy on my mind. Situation number nine. Yeah. I, I, to go back and listen to this i haven't yeah. listened to this in a while this was banging <laughs> i think i might listen to it on the way home it had actually. good production i remember the production being really good on it so did jay king produce it you know i'm not 100 percent certain okay. um i'm not really familiar with what, what what like if he had like um oh writing Mc- credits. Oh, and foster and i know he's still out here doing um some music related things i think like last year he had a music festival oh really i think he brought like some some old school r&b artists i think he brought shantae moore out oh 
Sacramento. Some other people. Uh, but he's still out in Sacramento doing his thing. Kind of like a quiet storm type of thing. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. We, we need to come, we come back on that. We need some good R&B again. Yeah, for sure. Sounds auto-tune. Do you like buying new records? If so, you should check out my other podcast, The Vinyl Roundup. It's a monthly show where I give you a list of new releases on Wax. The September edition is available now. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This is just like a small portion of your records and so many great stories. That's for having me on and yeah, um, to talk about this stuff. It's fun. I mean, tell people what you're doing now and where they can find you. Yeah, um, so I, I kind of have a, a, an odd history. Um, but we were talking about, I, I worked in the music business for a decent amount of time, but I actually now um, I have a marketing company um, with my love, Sarith. Mm-hmm. And uh, we basically focus on social media and content creation, but... Previous to that, I was in the restaurant business that I did for a few years um, and basically did a series of startups um, and marketing and that sort of thing, too. So I'm always kind of just doing things that I feel like I have a connection to. Mm-hmm. At one point, it was music, and I think forever it'll be marketing. Mm-hmm. But you can find me on Instagram, uh, m.chong, spelled out, M-D-O-T-C-H-O-N-G. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. All right. So that concludes episode number two of Crateism. Hope you liked it. I'm still looking for record collectors to interview for future shows. So if you're interested in the greater LA area, or you know what, even if you're in Sacramento or the Bay Area, because I'll probably be making out in that direction during the holidays, hit me up. Um, Send me a DM on Instagram at Crateism or Fatima Chantel, Chantel's with a C. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and never stop digging.